Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. Hello, and welcome to Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. I'm your host, Carly Florison. I'm a writer, a storyteller, and absolutely a history nerd. And yes, it's amazing, another episode so soon. I'm sure you'd given up any hope of hearing from me again before Christmas, after such a long break between episodes earlier. But I've had the chance to get this one done. It's a little bit of a shorter episode, and I'm hoping to get another couple out as well before we get into the busy season, the holiday season, which is always quite a busy time around here for our family. Anyway, once again, thanks to all those who got in touch to let me know that you enjoyed the previous episode. And I had a couple of people reach out to um, give me some financial support for the podcast as well. And I just wanted to say again, a huge thank you. I do this podcast because I really enjoy it. And I think that these stories deserve a wider audience. And it's always just so lovely to know that people are enjoying the podcast as well. Anyway, before I go any further, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the First Nations people of Western Australia. And as this episode deals with Western Australia as a whole, I'd like to recognise all the many different Indigenous nations here in Western Australia, with special mention to the Wujari Noongar people of the Esperance region, which is where I'm recording today. The First Nations people have a history and a connection to this land that goes back tens of thousands of years, and no history of Australia would be complete without acknowledging that. So I'd like to pay my respects to the First Nations people and their elders past and present. So we're back to politics today, and look, I'm a huge politics nerd, but I know that not everyone likes politics. But I think that this is actually a really interesting story. This is the story of Westralia, or maybe Aurelia, or maybe the nation of Western Australia. We didn't get around to deciding exactly what it would be called. But this is the story of the secession referendum of 1933. And just in case anyone is not familiar with the term, secession means to formally withdraw from a larger organisation or a union. And in this case, it was referring to Western Australia withdrawing from the Federation of Australian States and becoming an independent country. So this is quite a little known fact. Did you know that in 1933, Western Australia held a referendum to decide whether or not we should stay as a part of the wider Australian nation, that is the Commonwealth of Australia? And if the people of Western Australia voted yes in this referendum, then the state would become a separate self-governing dominion. So basically a country of our own. So why did we have this vote and what exactly did the people of Western Australia vote for? We're still clearly a part of the Federation of Australian States, so you might guess that we voted no, right? We'll get to that. But before we get there, let's just have a little look back at the history that led us up to this moment in 1933. So let's go back to when the first Europeans arrived here in Western Australia. And at that time, the First Nations people of the land had their own separate nations spread throughout Western Australia. When the British came to Western Australia, they set up a colonial settlement at Albany in 1826 and later, in 1829, the Swan River Colony was established, which would later become Perth. 
And we were, of course, a colony of the British Empire at that time. James Stirling was the first governor of Western Australia, and he had total authority over the colony under the British government. By 1859, the other colonies in Australia all had their own parliaments and they were responsible to govern themselves. So the people of Western Australia started to push to become self-governing too. Western Australia became a self-governing state in 1890 and Sir John Forrest became our first Premier. By the time that Western Australia became a self-governing state, there was serious talk about the colonies in Australia becoming a Commonwealth under one federal government. As the plan for federation was taking shape, the politicians started to plan a constitution. Now, let me just explain a little bit about voting here. In the early days, the only people who could vote in the self-governing colonies were men, and that is white men, of course, who held property. Either they owned some kind of property themselves or they rented property over a certain value. This was the same as in Britain. This requirement intentionally meant that most of the working class and the poor were not allowed to vote. So this was a way of keeping the power in the hands of the rich people of the nation. Here in Australia, South Australia was the first state to change this requirement and allow all men over the age of 21 to vote, whether or not they owned property. Very quickly in Australia, this was changed in the other states as well, so that by 1893, all white men over the age of 21 were allowed to vote. Compare this to Britain, where only property owners were allowed to vote right up until 1918, after the First World War. Of course, if you were a woman or an Aboriginal person or indeed a non-white immigrant, forget about it. We weren't that progressive. But at least we weren't restricting voting to only the rich. This was certainly a good step forward. Incidentally, did you know that Australia was the innovator of the secret ballot? which is sometimes called the Australian ballot. We also invented the voting booth. There were some countries that did have secret voting before us, but it, it took a bit of a different form. In Australia, before secret voting was introduced, people would just go up to the electoral officials and tell them their vote verbally. So everyone around could also hear who they were voting for. This certainly left things open for people to be able to put pressure on others to vote a certain way. We are also now one of the very few countries in the world that has compulsory voting. Another innovation. In 1894, the self-governing colony of South Australia gave women the vote. They were second in the whole world after New Zealand to give women the vote. So again, South Australia was quite progressive. Here's a funny thing. When the South Australian Parliament was going to vote on whether or not to, to allow women to have the vote, the Conservatives introduced an amendment to the bill. They amended the proposed new law to say that not only could women be able to vote, but they would also be able to stand as candidates for election. The Conservatives thought that this was such a ridiculous proposal that no one in Parliament would possibly vote for it. But the joke was on them. 
the South Australian Parliament voted the bill in and South Australia became the first place in the world where women could stand for Parliament as well as vote. Now, I know that you're saying this podcast is about Western Australia, not South Australia, but we're getting there. So, in Western Australia, remember, we had just become a self-governing colony in 1890. And in the early 1890s, the gold rush kicked into high gear in Western Australia. People were arriving from all over the place to seek their fortune. And in Western Australia, Perth was the area that held most of the political power. It was our largest centre of population, the place where most of the politicians live, and the place where our parliament was. And then, when the gold rush happened, many people from other places, mostly from the eastern states, flooded into the goldfields. Very quickly, the goldfields became a huge population centre. Coolgardie became the third biggest town in Western Australia. If you know it now, Coolgardie is a very small town near Kalgoorlie. One of the most fascinating things about Coolgardie, actually, is that the main street of town is wide enough for a camel train to turn around. And this was from when the town was established and camel trains were an important mode of transport. So if you ever get the chance, Coolgardie is well worth a visit. Anyway, I'm getting off track. In the decade from 1890 to 1900, the population of Western Australia went from 50,000 to nearly 200,000, and most of that growth was centred in the Goldfields region. So, as the Goldfields was growing as a centre of population, and in the early days, before the railroad from Perth went through, the people of the Goldfields didn't have much to do with Perth at all. They came to the goldfields through either Albany or Esperance, which very quickly went from a tiny settlement to a bustling town. In the late 1890s, there was even a proposal for the goldfields region, stretching from north of Kalgoorlie right down to the coast, to become a separate colony called Aurelia. Many of the people in the goldfields were from the eastern states, so they wanted to either be a separate colony, separate from Perth, or they wanted to join the Federation of Australian States and become one with the other states. The quite conservative politicians in Perth were very reluctant to join the Federation. They felt like they would be losing their their own power. And they were so far away from the centre of power in the east of the country that they didn't see too many benefits to joining the Federation. They also felt that it would be bad for the Western Australian economy because before Federation, about half of Western Australia's income came from intercolonial tariffs, which would change if we joined the Federation. So, of course, the politicians in Perth were looking for a way to swing the balance of power back to Perth. And then they realised that there weren't very many women in the goldfields. There were mostly men. So even though there was a larger population in the goldfields, there were more women in Perth. So they decided that they would give women the vote in an attempt to get more voters back in the Perth region. So we were the second state, or rather colony at that time, to grant women suffrage, that is to give women the vote. And this happened here in Western Australia in 1899. There is an interesting distinction here, though. 
In South Australia, all women were given the right to vote, whereas in Western Australia, First Nations women were excluded from having the right to vote. So, the men who were creating the new Australian constitution had a conundrum. If they said that women in the new federation were not allowed to vote, then South Australia and Western Australia might not want to join the federation or they might vote against the new constitution. Remember, women are voting in those states, so they'll have a say in whether or not they join the federation. But if they give women the vote in the new Commonwealth, then this might be too much for the quite conservative men in the colonies where women didn't have the vote and they might vote against federation or against the new constitution. So these men, these politicians who were creating the constitution, decided to hedge their bets and they added a clause that said anyone who has the right to vote in their home state could vote in the Commonwealth in federal elections. And this was enough to get Federation off the ground. And so in 1901, the six British colonies in Australia, Western Australia, South Australia, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania, became the Commonwealth of Australia. The first election was held in March 1901. And women in South Australia and Western Australia were allowed to vote in that election, but not in other parts of the country. Western Australia had been pretty reluctant to join the Federation, but with all the new people in the goldfields adding to the pressure, there was not really a lot that the politicians in Perth could do. Western Australians voted to accept the draft of the Constitution in a referendum in 1900, and then we joined the Commonwealth. We were the last of the six states to join. So from the very start, we have been quite reluctant members of the Federation of Australian States. And so, before we get to the referendum to secede, just one more thing about federation. In 1902, the Federal Parliament voted to introduce the Franchise Act, which would allow everyone in the new Commonwealth to vote, including women. And this was pretty progressive for the time. In comparison, women in Britain didn't get the vote until 1918. Women in France didn't get to vote until 1944. And in Switzerland, and this is quite shocking, women didn't get to vote until 1971. But when it came to First Nations people, we were far from progressive. In both Western Australia and Queensland, Aboriginal people were specifically excluded from voting. When the Franchise Act came in, in fact, it was a Western Australian man called Alexander Matheson, who was apparently a huge racist, who introduced an amendment to the bill specifically to exclude, and I'm quoting here, Aboriginal natives of Australia, Asia, Africa and the islands of the Pacific from being able to vote in federal elections, although an exception was made for Maori people from New Zealand. When you think of it, the absolute audacity of these early politicians was astounding, Not only did they come in and take the land from the First Nations people by force, but they then kept them out of the political system for many, many years. Here in Western Australia, the Natives Citizenship Rights Act was introduced in 1944, and this act said that some First Nations people could be granted citizenship. And this is in their own country. Yes, I know, it's enough to make you laugh if it didn't make you want to cry. 
but they could only be granted citizenship under certain conditions. Usually, those conditions included not associating with other Aboriginal people, which is a particularly cruel condition, if you ask me. Anyway, it wasn't until 1962 that all Aboriginal people in Australia got the right to vote in federal elections. But we are completely off track here, so let's get back to the secession movement. By 1906, the Western Australian Parliament passed a motion for Western Australia to withdraw from the Commonwealth, as being part of the new federation hadn't really done much good for the state. This motion didn't really go anywhere, but around the same time, the Sunday Times began publishing pro-secession articles in Western Australia. By the time the Great Depression came around, the federal government had introduced a number of tariffs on manufactured goods coming into Australia. And this was pretty harmful for Western Australia because we didn't have any kind of manufacturing industry in the state. And so we had to pay top dollar for any manufactured goods that were being imported into the country. The huge distances between Western Australia and the other states certainly didn't help with us feeling connected. And the sense began to grow in Western Australia that Federation was bad and that the only possible solution was for Western Australia to secede from the Commonwealth. Of course, this was at the height of the Great Depression, so the poor state of Western Australia's economy couldn't really be blamed on being a part of the wider Commonwealth of Australia, but of course, as you can imagine, we did blame it on being a part of the Commonwealth. There was a group at the time called the Dominion League which was campaigning for secession. The Dominion League argued that Perth was closer to Singapore than to Sydney, which is indeed quite true, and they argued that that was the way that trade would naturally flow, towards the west rather than towards the eastern states. The Premier at the time was a man called James Mitchell, and Mitchell was a member of the Nationalist Political Party, and he was very strongly pro-seceding. He wanted to become an independent nation. And so, a referendum was held across Western Australia in 1933 so that Western Australians could decide for themselves whether or not we should remain as a part of the Commonwealth of Australia or if we should secede. At the same time, there was a general state election. And here is the funny bit. Firstly, the people of Western Australia overwhelmingly voted to leave the Federation. 68% of the country voted yes to secession, so that's a two-to-one majority. In fact, only the mining areas and the goldfields in particular voted against secession. But at the same time, in the general election, the Nationalist Party was voted out of office. The Labour Party was voted in and a man called Philip Collier became the state premier. Now, at the time, the Labour Party was against secession, and so was Collier. But the people had voted, so what could he do? He sent a delegation to London to petition the British Parliament to remove Western Australia from the Commonwealth, so that we could become our own separate country. The British government considered the issue for quite a while, for 18 months actually, and then essentially they said, no, We made Australia an independent country and the only way that you, Western Australia, can secede from the Union is if Canberra gives you permission. 
And so the delegation came back to Perth and that was the end of it. Of course, if we had had a government and a premier in power that had been strongly in favour of secession, things might have been different. They might have pushed harder. But overall, Collier was a pretty good premier and he did a lot of good things for the state, especially for the rural areas that were hardest hit by the Depression. And at the same time, the federal government realised that they needed to do more to support the smaller states. And I mean by that, smaller by population. And so they instituted the Commonwealth Grants Scheme. And in Western Australia, the push for secession very quickly faded. Now, that wasn't entirely the end of the story. In the 1970s, another secession movement sprang up. And Lang Hancock, you might know him as being the father of Gina Reinhart, Australia's richest woman, Lang Hancock founded the Westralian Secession Movement. But once again, this movement didn't go anywhere and it faded out soon afterwards. In more recent times, in fact in the early 2000s and as recently as 2017, there was another little push for secession. This time around it was because we here in Western Australia contribute quite a lot to the revenue of the federal government through GST. This is largely due to our mining industry, especially if you consider that only around 10% of Australia's population lives here in Western Australia, we do contribute above our fair share to the federal, federal government's revenue. And we don't get quite that much back. But look, to be fair, I think we're doing fairly well here in Western Australia. All things considered, we are really quite a prosperous state. We cannot complain at all. And so that's it. That's the story of the secession movement in Western Australia. This is about the referendum where we voted to leave the Commonwealth, but somehow or other, we're still part of it many, many years on. I think you'll agree that it's a fascinating story, and I often wonder what Western Australia would be like today if indeed we had become an independent nation back in 1933. I think it would be a very different place. But I guess that's all up to our imagination these days, isn't it? I hope you've enjoyed this story today. As always, if you want some more information about the references that I've used, you can check out my website, and that's www.wildwapodcast.com. And, of course, you can get in touch by email at wildwapodcast at gmail.com. And you can also follow me on Instagram that's Wild WA Stories Podcast. And I will be getting my act together and sharing some more photos that relate to these stories sometime soon. Thanks again for joining me today. I hope you've enjoyed this story and I'll see you again sometime very soon for another wild story from Western Australia's past.